Another episode of our Lost in Science Summer Series. This is what we do usually in the break between December and February, where we basically go and have a look back over the previous year, which is 2022, and re play some of our stories from that year. So this week uh, I've decided to recall some of Claire's stories from earlier last year. We've got a story about Claire's discovery of one of Australia's rarest marsupials and in fact one of the oddest uh, mammals in the world being an egg-laying mammal. Uh, You can stay tuned for Claire to fill in the details on that one and we've also got Claire again talking about the evolution of warm-bloodedness in mammals so a very mammalian uh, episode this week on our Lost in Science summer series. I hope you enjoy it. Please stay tuned. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the community radio network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So I've been feeling pretty lucky this last couple of weeks. Um, It's mostly because I was able to tick off one of the biggest animals on my list of animals I want to see in the wild. I'm sure you can guess what it is. Lives in rivers. It's furry. It lays eggs. It's got venomous spurs. Now, you said before that you ticked off lots of birds and you ticked off lots of mammals. Yes, this is this is neither. This is a monotreme. It's the platypus, obviously. Technically, that's a mammal. It just fits within the monotreme. 
part yeah, of mammals okay. alongside marsupials and placental mammals. But I see where you're coming from. Um, have you ever seen one in the wild? I have just briefly though. Like yeah, it's pretty I saw brief, it and yeah. it s- swam away. Yes, yes. Just they don't stick around got, for a conversation, do they? No. no. Um, I managed to see it up in the Otways, um, at a place called Lake Elizabeth. It was very magical. I'm just sort of like scooting around on the top of the water. Very, very beautiful, very cool. Um, but anyway, it got me thinking about one of my favourite subjects to talk about and think about. Yeah, obviously they live in waterways, in, in burrows, um, they lay eggs, they've got venomous spurs. Um, but it got me thinking all about sort of how to protect platypus better and what we're doing at the moment to protect our waterways, especially from uh, pollution from industry. And, you know, all waterways, they sustain incredible biodiversity, um, including the platypus. Uh, not all of them, but some of them do. They provide humans with water, amenity, wonder, and for First Nations people, um, a connection to culture. But in so many instances, we've sort of used them like a toilet. Creeks and rivers um, are a place for industries to dump dirty water. And, you know, it's only been in the last 50 years we've had increasing sort of recognition around regulation for waterways. Um, So today I just wanted to talk about one such situation uh, where for more than 40 years an underground coal mine has been um, letting out really poorly treated wastewater directly into a river that you would think should be very protected. This is the Wollongambi River and the reason it should be protected is because It's located right in the heart of the Blue Mountains, and the Blue Mountains is a World Heritage Area. Now, the government actually claimed when it made the case for making the Blue Mountains a World Heritage Area um, that there were no nearby mines that could directly impact the water catchments of, um, of the Blue Mountains. But this turned out to be very wrong um, with this particular mine actually being underground and leaking into the Wollongambi River. Um, And researchers from Western Sydney University started testing the Wollongambi River, which is a wild river uh, in the World Heritage Site and have been testing that for around, probably since around 2010 to 2014. And in 2014, they published what fairly serious uh, implications for this river. So huge increases in the amount of nickel and zinc that they found in the river. So up to 10 times the sort of safe levels. And this was found not just at the site where the water entered, but all the way sort of 20 kilometers downstream. Um, Now, along with this sort of heavy metal poisoning, they found huge discrepancies in sort of Um, insects and other invertebrates living downstream of where the mine water was coming in compared to the insects and invertebrates that were living upstream. So the abundance, you know, the amount of insects fell by about 90% uh, downstream of the mine and you had a drop in biodiversity. So it was around 65% lower um, where the mine was as well. And... They also found this, you know, incredible buildup of contaminants in the in the surrounding food chain, which you would imagine, you know, plants growing on the riverbeds who had uptaken, uh, you know, massive amounts of contaminants 
and and contaminants and build up in the tissue of other invertebrates like aquatic beetles. So these were pretty shocking results and the researchers, um, you know, banded together and called on the um, Environmental Protection Authority, the New South Wales arm, to put tougher regulations on the mine, which is the Clarence Colliery. And, um, you know, trying to stop them polluting so much into into this um, this river system. Now, it took five years of the researchers um, campaigning and a huge sort of community outpouring and letter writing and all that sort of um, incredible coming together of community. But they were successful in getting the EPA to enforce a stronger regulation on the mining company. Um, and so that na- from now on, the Clarence Colliery or, you know, from when it started, which was in 2020, the Clarence Colliery was, um, you know, they were under regulation to clean the water and then keep track of exactly how many, you know, exactly what what chemicals and what heavy metals um, and exactly what the, the water clarity and the water quality was um, going into the Wollongambi River. Um, now, the same Western Sydney University scientists have now released new research so you know just in 2022 detailing whether there's been a change or not since these regulations came into place so after only a year or so of these regulations um, they have seen quite a huge amount of ecological recovery and with the water qualities improved and um, you know this is samples going all the way 20 kilometers downstream there's been a massive reduction in zinc and nickel and um, they've been keeping an eye on that from reports from the colliery. But, you know, what I think is quite interesting is, you know, the animals are starting to come back, especially what they say are the most pollution-sensitive groups of invertebrates, which I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the mayflies and the stoneflies and the caddisflies are particularly susceptible to pollution. And they've increased their numbers um, by over two hundred percent compared to early accounts. Is that is that because those species uh, spend part of their early life cycle in the water itself? So they're not just relying on the water; they actually grow mm, in the water as well. Mm. So that's probably why they're, uh, yeah, they're, you know, they're really sensitive to it anyway. Absolutely, um, and yeah, with this big increase in insect numbers, there will no doubt be, you know a flow-on effect uh, and or a downstream effect for other uh, water birds, for lizards, for fish, and even, you know, the humble platypus, we can only hope. Um, now, this is all really good news, but the researchers recognise it's sort of the start on a road to recovery, and it's probably going to be a long one. River sediments remain contaminated with heavy metals for up to 40 years, um, and, you know, zinc and nickel are heavy metals, uh, so they suggest to speed up the recovery, to take contaminated sediment, especially around the river where the mine, uh, you know, outfalls the majority of the water. So to sort of take that out of out of the system. But I guess I just really wanted to highlight that, you know, this really is just one example of how, you know, community and scientists and government and environmental regulators can all work together and eventually lead to positive impacts, even though, you know, it's taken a long time. 
But realistically, I think more should be done in the prevention stage um, before it gets to this to be able to protect platypus where they are rather than trying to bring them back. It's also good to see that, you know, in this case, protecting the platypus, that the polluters got stuck with the bill. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm, I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. In general, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> then we compute... Well, don't laugh. That's really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guessed is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compare to experiment or experience. Compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. And that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guess or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. <laughs> I'm Maggie Adairn Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. Thank you. 
So, Chris, when you think about the difference between mammals and something like, let's say, reptiles or fish, what comes to mind that really separates us? Mm, scales? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess not all reptiles would have scales, I would say, but um, maybe something a bit sort of um, closer to your heart? Ah, is there something to do with, like, um, (laughs) is it called endotherms? Yes, Um, that is. You remember your year nine biology. Endotherms and ectotherms. Our warm blood versus versus their cold blood. Um, Yeah, we are in a very unique and enviable situation as mammals where we produce our own body heat and we control our own body temperature. Like you say, we are endotherms or warm-blooded and there's a lot of reasons to be glad and happy um, about something we had no control about but being (laughs) warm-blooded we can as humans and as mammals we can withstand colder environments which means we can be more active in the day and the night um, and it makes us more less sorry less susceptible to pathogens and fungi Uh, especially when compared to our cold-blooded cousins. And um, we also tend to, as a result, reproduce as well. So this is all very advantageous and, in fact, maybe one of the main reasons. And, in fact, maybe one of the main reasons why mammals tend to dominate almost every global ecosystem. So really warm-bloodedness, it's... You know, the key to making mammals what we are today. And it was likely the starting point where all the other parts of mammalness, like maybe the hair on our bodies um, and other things, evolved. Now, I mean, obviously we're not the only animals sort of warm-blooded. I mean, birds... Yeah, birds are too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And allegedly dinosaurs, uh, many dinosaurs are probably were warm-blooded so really? is it a um, okay. I didn't know. is this something I didn't know that, that i've that i've heard mm-hmm. i'm so i'm curious like if you're looking at um how mammals became warm-blooded um whether it's conversion evolution with our birds and dinosaurial friends that is a very interesting point i won't go in, like i haven't gone into that in this story but maybe would be good to follow up on that because yeah would it have been conversion or would it have just happened once and then Birds, yeah, I don't know. Hmm, hmm, interesting. Mm. Science. <laughs> Future science. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of big mysteries of evolution. Um, and until now, well, until recently, we haven't known exactly, you know, when warm-bloodedness became a thing specifically for our mammalian ancestry. Most scientists had speculated that the transition to warm-bloodedness was very gradual. It was a process that happened over like tens of millions of years. Um, And some people, some researchers had suggested it happened quite close to the origin of mammals. So when mammals, when sort of like, you know, mammals actually really um, started turning up in the fossil record. But there hasn't been a lot of evidence to back this up. But a new paper published in Nature this week, it's pricked the ears um, of uh, evolutionary scientists around the world because for the first time, scientists have looked at the fossil record of early mammal 
inner ears and, you know, non-mammals as well. So looked at the whole sort of fossil record, looked at the inner ears, and from that have drawn conclusions about when mammals became warm-blooded. Um, the paper's called Inner Ear Biomechanics Reveals Reveals a Late Triassic Origin for Mammalian Endothermic. So there you go. Wow. So late Triassic, that is fairly early in the whole thing. That is like mm. of your, your your big kind of your big three, your Triassic, the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. That one's the one that came first. So that's when the dinosaurs were first emerging. And I think mammals were first emerging too, wasn't it really? Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was actually, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> the end of the story, but it was actually before mammals um, uh, evolved. So... There you go. Okay. Yeah, it was a little so bit what is it about the inner ear that tells us? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Chris. Um, I mean, this is a very fascinating story because it's sort of, first of all, a link between the anatomy of the inner ear and warm-bloodedness. It was a bit of an educated guess between the publishing scientists. Um, they sort of had this hunch that there was this link with the inner ear and warm-bloodedness. Um, and secondly, they needed... They needed, I guess, it was only, I guess, bef because they had access to this incredibly abundant and diverse fossil record in South Africa of all these land mammals that, that, that is located, you know, I think it's in the Karoo Valley in South Africa. At the specific time period that they were looking at, that they could go to this fossil record and actually compare many, many, many different fossils to be able to get a really clear understanding of um, a whole lot of different uh, different extinct species in the ears to look at, you know, to actually pinpoint the time. So let me start first with the scientist's intuition. Started with the two researchers thinking about the inner ear and as anyone who's ever felt motion sick knows the inner ear, it's not all about hearing. It, as you said in the intro, it houses the organ of balance. These are called semicircular canals. That's where, that's where the magic of balance happens in these semicircular canals. Now there are three semicircular canals and if you can imagine them, um, they're oriented in three dimensions in space. So there's an X, a Y and a Z plane in your semicircular canals. And they're filled with a fluid that flows in the canals and as the head moves, it activates receptors to tell the brain exactly sort of the three dimensional position of the head and the body. Now, the runniness or the viscosity of um, the fluid in these semicircular canals is critical to the balance, um, to, to balance pretty much. So, um, this, this fluid and the way that this, that these sort of, um, semicircular canals are structured, uh, is incredibly important, but this fluid, just like honey or any other sort of liquid that has a viscosity, it's quite a lot runnier in warmer conditions than in cold conditions. So you can imagine where we're going here, right? So, um, <clears throat> We have these semicircular canals um, and we have this liquid that in cold-blooded creatures would be like the honey left in the fridge, like honey that you leave in the fridge or on a cold winter morning. And so the semicircular... That really kind of crystallised really? honey, that, that, that only white 
It's really ridiculous, but also it just does not flow. Yeah. Um, So the actual semicircular canals are shaped and adapted for this slow-moving, slow-flowing, cold winter morning honey. But when the honey warms up and becomes runny, the fluid and the canals don't work the same. And so the semicircular canals have adapted a different shape or a different morphology. So this is what scientists see in warm-blooded versus cold-blooded creatures. They see this different geometry of semicircular canals, all to take into account this viscosity of the inner ear liquid. It's pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, so that's where South Africa's um, yeah wealth of fossils comes in. Um, so the scientists were like, okay, we just need to see when the cold to warm-blooded um, inner ear change happened and just trace these semicircular canals through geological time using, using this incredible fossil record. And from there, they can pinpoint the species in which the change of geometry happened. And with that change in geometry is the change from cold blood to warm blood. So it provides this accurate guide of when warm bloodedness evolved. Um, So the Karoo region, like I said before, it's in the basin. It's a basin in South Africa. It's preserved this sort of treasure trove of fossils, many of them belonging to our mammalian ancestors. And there's pretty much an unbroken record of evolution over about 100 million years, um, documenting sort of transformation from reptilian-like animals to mammals. Um, And the researchers used CT scanning techniques. They used 3D modelling, and they were able to reconstruct the inner ear of dozens of mammalian ancestors. And from that, they could pinpoint um, exactly which species had an inner ear anatomy that was consistent with warmer body temperatures and which ones did not. So from that, they found that our warm bloodedness developed in our mammalian ancestors um, around 233 million years ago. So this was in the late Triassic period. So it's actually 33 million years prior to the origin of mammals. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was a lot of time there where... We had warm blood, but we weren't mammals yet. Hmm. So that suggests that, you know, all those other mammalian things that um, that we evolved probably came after. <laughs> it was probably the first thing that happened. Um, and according to the researchers, um, the warm bloodedness evolved fairly quickly in geological terms. So they could actually see it evolve in less than a million years. So, I mean, seems like a long time to me, but in um evolution uh, geologists pretty are, quick yeah and geologists are like they're geologists yeah they don't i don't want to say anything you know, they, they don't, they talking, don't talk in generations do they're, 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 they're not they in a hurry talk in eon. Yeah, yeah yeah so there you go chris you've heard it here first the ears are the window to our warm blood and understanding just how it is that mammals came to be the dominant land animal across the world And 
that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.